So today is August the 20th, 2017. You all ready for the title? Shearing sheep and the glory of goats. Shearing sheep and the glory of goats. It can be kind of a tongue twister. So everybody, I mean everybody, go to Hebrews chapter 5. Let's begin right there. You can't hear me? Does that work better? Is that much better? Okay, I'll put it right here. The rule of thumb is that you put it on the second button. Hold on one second. I have an undershirt. Don't worry. Nope. Okay. Amen. Is everybody there? Amen. Hebrews 5, verse 5. Let's start it off. So Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, you are my son. Everybody say son. Today I become your father. Say father. Father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Say submission. Submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect, He became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey obey him. I have a very linear path of going from the origination of where our life, our breath, uh, our, our glory begins. And it begins with the source. So put up the first side for us, Joy. Everybody say source. There we go. Let's go to the one right after that. The source. This is a primary focus on today I become your father. So every body of water that we see in some relative nature has a source that it flows from. For instance, let's take the land of Israel. The very north you have the Sea of Galilee near Mount Hermon. It flows south down towards the Dead Sea. The Jordan River is the connecting means that the, the mountains in northern Israel collect the, the snow and the rain and they channel it down to the Jordan River and it lands in the Dead Sea. There has to be an origination of your source as a follower of Jesus. And where it began for Jesus himself was with the Father in heaven. As we begin to build this, it will be one, one element upon another. But uh, entirely through the message, I want you to evaluate your heart. Not anyone else's, yours. Where or or in what area of your life are you tapping into the source that comes directly from the Father? Does everybody have that? Amen. Turn to Genesis chapter 49. Let's see how this begins in the law. We'll start in verse 1. Is everybody else there? Yep. No good? All right. Verse 1. Then Jacob called for his sons and said, Gather around so I can tell you what will happen to you in days to come. Let's pause right there. Isn't it good to just to have a fatherly voice sometimes in your life that can look into the function of who you are and begin to call out what will yet come 
into your life? How many of you have a mezuzah statement? You men of God that have households. You know, without that mezuzah statement, without understanding what you are called by the Father to do, you are aimless. You begin to hunt for certain activities, certain tasks, trying to define for yourself what you're called to and what your purpose is. But with it, we have clarity, we have precision, and we can accomplish the will of God at every turn, no matter how major or how minor the task may be. Amen? Amen. Verse 2. Assemble and listen, sons of Jacob. Listen to your father Israel. You know, at this point, his sons had all been gathered back to him. He thought one was dead, Joseph. And all of his other sons had let him down in some shape or form. But here he is speaking to his son, Judah. And he begins to proclaim some promises about Judah. Skip to verse 10. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. So I just want to chop this up a little bit. When I hear the word scepter, and also right after that, the ruler's staff, you know what comes to my mind? Psalm 23. And in Psalm 23, it's describing the Lord as our shepherd. And it says, your rod and your staff comfort me. Well, why exactly would it be a rod and a staff? Because usually most pictures of shepherds that I've seen, they have just a shepherd's staff. You know, there's two different elements to a shepherd's uh, wares that he carries with him. One is to guide sheep. That's usually the shepherd's staff that we see. It has a hook on the end. He, with it, he kind of just keeps his, all his sheep in line as they're walking through paths. If they begin to veer off, he taps them on the side. If they begin to race off when he's trying to bring them near, with that hook, he brings them even close. There's a guidance. There's a correction. But you know, that, that other portion, the rod, this is similar to like a weaver's rod. With it, he's able to inflict sharp pain, much like a rebuke, and also use it to wear off any other predators that would prey upon his sheep to the point where he could kill a wolf with this rod. Isn't it good to know that the father and the shepherd that you have has authority and power to comfort, to guide, to correct you, but in the same token to give you a sharp rebuke and if not destroy the enemies that are trying to destroy you? So in all gambits and our wide array of who our shepherd is, we have to love the authority that God has put in our lives. Because he who hates correction is... Let's not be stupid. So here we have the father, Jacob, Israel, proclaiming promises, prophesying over his children as they're gathered all back to him. And he is originating from his source that he has received from God, a calling out of a purpose in his own children. Let's go to the next one, Isaiah 53. And we'll just start in verse 6. Now what we read previously in Genesis 39, in Genesis 49 is that what the final promise given to, to Judah was that the obedience of the nations would be his. So let's go to that, that next slide real quick before we read Isaiah 53. It has obedience. Amen. <laughs> obedience. Everybody say obedience. obedience. Obedience is learned from suffering. Isn't that what we read earlier in Hebrews 5? That Jesus learned obedience from what he suffered. 
So I have four daughters, and it is my God-given duty and responsibility to spank their behinds. Because I love them, and in addition to that, they do things that make me very upset. And disobedience is by far the, the mainstay of what makes me upset. And here's why it makes me upset. Is that there is a standard of God that we are all held accountable to. And if I do not hold my children to the same standard that I'm held accountable to, I am guilty of watching them and allowing them to enter into death. And that is never a parent's desire. No one has a baby and holds him in their arms and say, I just hope you don't fulfill God's will for your life and end up going to hell. I want my girls to not only experience life, I want them to have the godliest life possible and live it to the fullest and accomplish everything that they are designed to do. How much more then does God desire that for you? That his very purpose for the tribe of Judah was to have the obedience of the nations his. And as you read through the remainder of Genesis 49 about Judah, it begins to prophesy about the very things that Jesus would fulfill. Let's read a little bit more about that in Isaiah 53, verse 6 and 7. We all, say we all, we all, like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. You know, Jesus, as the king of the sheep, as the ram, stood in your place to take upon his shoulders your wrongs. It's our, it's our sinful nature that our first response whenever we are confronted of how we are wrong is to blame someone or something else, right? Nothing's changed since the garden. So the Adam, the husband, what did he blame? He blamed his wife. God confronted the wife. Who did she blame? The serpent. The serpent was basically told to shut up and eat some dust. It is our sinful nature that hates correction. And you know that in most of the cases God disciplines, or in most cases God uses suffering and hardship to discipline his sons. In the same manner like with my, my children, I give them several chances before I actually get to the point that I'm correcting them. I give them warnings. They can see the look on my face. They were describing this to me the other day. My eyes get real big. My right eyebrow goes up. And I begin to bite my lip. This is the fury of God boiling inside of me. And I'm about to just, you know, rock it over. So, Whatever you're doing, stop what you're doing and do something different. In the same way, how many times has God given you the opportunity to take note of the signs that he is upset with you, that you're doing wrong, that you're out of shalom, and you're not listening, you're not paying attention? So he adds some suffering to it in order to get your attention. Because what he desires out of you is your obedience, but more importantly, let's go to that first tier, the source. He wants to be your source of obedience. But just with these two alone, I've done these two things before in my life. I don't know about you, but I want you to evaluate your own heart. I've tried to be obedient outside of making God my source. 
I was pursuing my will, what I thought was best of how to accomplish what God has made me to do in a simple task or a major task. But I went outside of his counsel, outside of his source to try and figure out what he wanted me to do. Now let's flip that the other way. I'm asking the Lord to be my source. But when he tells me what to do, I'm really disobedient to actually do it. Much like Jonah, right? We all know the story of Jonah. Lord, I'm your man. You're a power for the hour. I'll do and say whatever you want me to do. Where you go, I go. What you say? No, not Nineveh. I'll do everything but go to the very place where I hate and despise the people. What inside of your life have you done either one of those? Where you've denied the Father's voice to be your source. Though you say, I'm being obedient. I'm doing something. Well, all these interconnect. Let's go to verse 10 of Isaiah 53. Yet it was the Lord's will. Everybody say the Lord's will. The Lord's will. To crush him. You just pause right there. And say, look, the Father has the, the perfect Son. You couldn't ask for a better Son than Jesus, right? There was nothing wrong about Him. And it was the Lord's will to crush Him. For who? For you. For me. In the same way that you have to take an olive and crush it in order to get olive oil, same way the perfect Son of God had to experience the crushing from God's hand in order to be olive oil upon your head, in order to redeem you from your iniquities, your obstinance, your hatred of correction. Come on, let's put this into real terms in today's life. We use a lot of churchy terms, but it usually is an exemption from the realities of how we live. So when we say our iniquities, what does that mean? It's your fault. What you have done that's wrong. And that causes a disparity between you and the Father. It disconnects you from the source that will lead you to the right kind of obedience. Let's read the rest of this. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Verse 11. After the suffering of his soul... He will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. We have an example set before us in the King of Kings, in the life that Jesus lived, but more importantly, his presence inside of you that's leading you to obedience. That obedience is going to cause you to suffer something. I don't know about you, but I don't go around looking for a means to suffer. But I can guarantee you, when you are pursuing the will of God, you have to understand and be braced for and ready to suffer. And that suffer comes in a wide variety of things. If I ask my children to go clean their room, they're going to act like I am absolutely torturing them. They're suffering for Jesus, right? But what is the outcome? Right order in their room. It's just a short amount of time that they actually have to get off the couch, put down their phone, and go do what I asked them to do. 
But if there's perspective is truly on me as the source and their obedience flows from my relationship with them, they will act in joy and it's really not suffering because that's not where it ends. Suffering leads us to something, but it first is enacted upon by obedience. You ever heard the term, before the question's even asked, the answer is yes? Well, that's true for the king of kings. Can it not be true for us? No, it's absolutely true for us. What in your life is the Lord asking you to be obedient in, but you just find yourself resisting over and over again? Because that's just a little bit too hard. Go talk to who? Go do what? Go sell what? You know, a rich young ruler walked away sad because he had many possessions. And the Lord challenged his idolatry by really challenging what's your source. And he gave him something to be obedient with. But he didn't want to suffer the loss. Let's move on. Let's go to Psalm 44. So the source leads us to the obedience, which then leads us to righteousness. Psalm 44, verse 20 through 22. Is everybody else there? Come on, we had a powerful worship service. Hopefully the Sunday sleepies ain't getting a hold of your eyelids. Lift up your eyelids and your hands. If we had forgotten the name of our God and spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God have discovered it since he knows the secrets of the heart? Yet for your sake, say your sake, sake. we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. The obedient nature of a sheep led that sheep to slaughter. Come on, who's willing to be slaughtered? Usually we say the litmus test of loving Jesus is this. If a firing squad came into our building right now and held guns to your heads and said, deny Jesus and you'll live, remain as a Christian and you die, we would all say, yes, Lord, I'll die in a heartbeat. But one thing stuck out to this, uh, stuck out in this to me. Yet for your sake, we face death. How long? You know, being slaughtered in a moment, honestly, is a very easy thing. It's over in, in an instant. That's if you actually feel something. But what about facing the pressure and the suffering of death all day long? You know that weight that sat on Jesus that caused him to fall to his face in the Garden of Gethsemane? is facing that pressure and that weight of death all day long because he was a sheep being led to the slaughter. No servant is greater than his master. They hated him. They're going to hate us. And they will hate you because you reek with the fragrance of Christ. And the very presence of God within you convicts them just like the Ark of the Covenant made Dagon fall on his face. That the way of life that is set before us by the king of kings is the only way of life that we're to have. There is no other source that we can have and still call ourselves obedient that leads us into some form of righteousness. You know, as we put all these things together, I'm going through my own heart. Yes, Lord, I'm being obedient to you in this. 
Yes, I'm going to face death all day long. I'm looking for areas to die to self and reveal them to me, Lord. If I'm serving some foreign God, reveal it. But I just want to be obedient. And I know that will lead to righteous acts. But you know what I'm most surprised by? My reactions when it's actually there. You know, Buddy was preaching on Wednesday night about fear and fearing not. And whenever you say, hey, Buddy, are you scared of heights? Uh, no, not really. Or yes. But when you put yourself on that edge and you have to stare that fear face to face, isn't it a completely different reality? Well, so is obedience that's learned through suffering. Yes, Lord, I want to learn how to be obedient to you. Put me in that suffering until you're there. Then you're screaming like a pig and you want to climb off the altar of God. That fire is just a little bit too hot. Evaluate your hearts as we go through this. The key is that you are constantly attached to the source. And the source is the Father. Demonstrated through His Son. He is the chief shepherd of us. Let's walk through this a little bit more. Yet for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered a sheep to be slaughtered. This leads us to a, a certain picture that I want to show of a sheep. Take a good look. This is about the ugliest looking sheep I've ever seen. The name of this sheep is Shrek. No joke. This is a, a real deal. His name was Shrek. Shrek disappeared for six years. And he went and hid in a cave. Because he despised being sheared by his shepherd. In that cave he hid, and I think what, once they, they sheared this coat, they were able to make six different coats from it. It was up to like 40 pounds of wool that was hanging off of him. You see that dark spot in front of his chest? That's from him having to get embedded in the mud in order to eat grass. And that if, if he even came close to water, he would sink like a rock. Take a good look at Shrek and say, Lord, am I Shrek? Have I hidden from your word, shearing me of my glory? And all I've done is hid in a cave and withdrawn from other people so that they, they can't touch my glory. And I can just grow up from myself because I don't want anyone else to correct me. I don't want your rod and your staff to comfort me. That I don't want you to be my source, but yet I'm being obedient. I'm over here in this cave and occasionally I'll walk out when no one else is around and I graze. I go read God's word in a coffee shop, but I will not talk to anybody that God sends my way. What glory are you growing for yourself? And if you hold on to it, it is death. It is absolute death. And it's ugly as hell too. Turn to Luke 24. Let's read verse 19. Hold that, that picture up for us, Joy. I think we need to stare at that a little bit longer. For me, it's like looking into a mirror. And dare not I say, mirror, mirror on the wall. I don't think I'm going to get the answer I'm looking for. Luke 19. I'm sorry, Luke 24, verse 19. Are y'all there? Yes. Amen. 
What things, he asked. Let me back a little bit. He's on the road to Emmaus after resurrecting, and he runs into some disciples. They didn't recognize him. We're going to come back to that. I'll back up a little bit. Verse 13. Now the same... That, that, now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. I don't know, it's sort of like Jesus, the king of the sheep, had been shorn. His glory had been stripped from him, and now he has a new glory. That covers him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? Kind of is reminiscent of Deuteronomy. They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and did not know the things that have happened here, there in these days? Like, dude, are you from the moon? And Jesus asked, what things? About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels. Who said he was alive? Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. He said to them, how foolish are you and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? He had to suffer so that he could then enter into his glory. I don't know about you, but going through that list again, Lord, I'm tapping into the source of who you are. I'm being obedient, and I'm willing to suffer. But you know what's in my mind the entire time? How long until the suffering's over and we get to the glory part? Lord, when will I experience your resurrection power? Because you know what? Just having diabetes for four years is too much for me. Every birthday, somebody eats cake and I can't have any (laughs) suffering. Every morning when I wake up, I am a bear of a human being. I hate myself and I need to crucify myself all over again as if it were the first day I was born again. Lord, I don't want that. I want this to be easier. Lord, how much must I suffer in the pursuit of being obedient to you as my source? Because I just want to get to the glory. Our king, our chief shepherd, the ram of God, had to suffer before he entered this glory. And it had to be complete. It had to be thorough. You know, he, I don't know about you guys, but he could have easily just revealed himself and said, Hey guys, so good to see you. I'm out of the grave. I'm resurrected. Here I am in my glory. That's what I would have done. I would have ran up and gave him a hug and say, ta-da, look what God did. A brand new car right here, a body. Doesn't he 
never run on blood. Runs on the Holy Ghost. But what was he doing? He was testing their hearts. He was wanting them to put into practice everything he had poured into them for three and a half years. And he's pointing back to the prophets. He's pointing back to the very things that we just got through reading in Genesis, in Psalm, and in Isaiah. Because he told them plainly exactly what he was going to do. And he's calling them stupid, foolish. Come on, guys, wake up. This is us looking in the mirror. And we don't have sober judgment of exactly what we look like. We imagine ourselves to look much different than what we see here on the screen. But the minute that we come in contact with God's word, it is living, it is active, it is a double-edged shearing clipper. Judging the thoughts and attitudes of my glory that I have grown for myself. But when we begin to surrender to the king of sheep and we allow his word to just strip us of all of our glory, we become free. We become vulnerable. We become able to move about and not be hindered by our own glory. But now it's laying at the feet of the shepherd and it can be made into something that clothes other people. Your glory is not for you. My glory is not for me. It's to constantly be shorn by his presence and his word and be submitted to his feet and say, Lord, whatever you want to do with this, it's yours. Source, obedience. Now we're going to move to righteousness, right deeds. Let's go to Romans chapter 5. Let's start in verse 18 and read through 19. Everybody there? Oh, yeah. Just make sure that image of Shrek is burned into your mind, like staring into the light and just close your eyes and you see that light everywhere you go. I know it is for me. Consequently, just as a result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act, everybody say one act, act. of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. That one act was Jesus being sheared, actually being slaughtered, giving up not only of his glory, but giving up of his very life. Like the Passover lamb, he was cut. He was torn. He was broken. And his blood poured out and put on the doorpost of your heart so that you could come into the Holy of Holies and experience not only a transforming power of God, but to maintain access to the very presence of God no matter where your feet stand. One act of righteousness resulted in justification that brought life to all men. Let's show that slide with obedience to righteousness. In our obedience, it comes from a true source, meaning a right relationship with God, that right shalom. It gives us the ability to then do the right deeds that God so desires. You know, righteousness is not just a state of being like being angry. 
that his blood that's sprinkled upon you now enables and empowers you to hear from God, to see what God sees, and therefore do what God wants you to do. But if you remove him as the source, you might think you're being obedient, you might think you're doing righteous deeds, but instead, you're going to do self-righteous deeds. It's all about you. Like Shrek, it's all about your glory. Well, I'm, I'm around the shepherd. I'm growing wool. I just don't agree with him having to share me right now. So I'm going to wait six years in a cave. I'm going to sit at the back of the church. I'm going to attend every foundations. I'm just going to stay on the fringes. I'm going to glean everything everybody else is, but I'm going to stay far away from the shepherd. That happens all the time, saints. Some of you sitting in this room match that criteria. And I really need you to decide. Are you Shrek? An overgrown sheep? Or are you a goat? I want to measure this real quick. Joy, if you could put up that picture of the goat. The, the next one. There we go. Beautiful, right? Goat's hide uh, is actually used in the tabernacle covering for Moses. You know, goats and sheep, when they were small, have so many similarities. As they grow older and mature, there are certain things that make them vastly different. This goat will not become into the same state that Shrek was in. He will not be overwhelmed with his glory. In fact, it's a little bit different. The more you, you give them well-watered fields, the access to their vegetation... They grow strong and sleek. Much like we read in Ezekiel, the very type of sheep that God despises. They become extremely independent and self-sufficient. Let me give you some comparisons. Going back to Psalm 23. right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He leads me besides what? Still waters and into green pastures. Still waters and green pastures. It's where you have a gentle flowing brook, and you have tender shoots. This is where uh, our shepherd leads us, and us as shepherds for you guys. We're tra constantly trying to lead you to a place that has shalom and right order, there's a refreshing pool of God's presence. Getting the fresh grass of God's word, the tender shoots that are easy to chew, easy to pull up, and easy to digest. You know what goats feed on? Completely different type of vegetation. They usually go for something much, much more complex and usually have to elevate themselves to reach it at the top of a shrub or bush. You know what that tells me as a shepherd? Those who constantly come and ask me highly complex biblical questions because they just want to prove to me or one of the other pastors how spiritual and knowledgeable they are, that's a goat. But those who come in submission and are easily digesting the tender things of God, the fresh things that are coming from this pulpit, coming from our houses, coming from our fellowship, and they thirst for that still water and are nurtured and fed by it and let the word of God shear them with that glory, that's a sheep. So many times you are trying to interact with a sheep, but you don't realize they're actually a goat. That there's strong and sleek nature. 
that they never have an abundance of glory that weighs them down, but they have this sleek coat that you admire, this talent to woo people or to, to, wor- to not worship, but to play music or to be a good orator. They got a magnetic personality. You know, the devil has a magnetic personality. The personality you need is the personality that God has designed you to be, and that's the personality of a sheep that follows a shepherd. We are in the business of pastoring sheep because Jesus is in the business of pastoring sheep. And where there is a goat, we will root you out. And we will ask you to do one of two things. Experience the transforming power of God that transformed Jesus in the grave and resurrected him and gave him a new appearance and a new nature. Or find the door. I'm not going to waste our time on trying to shepherd goats. Instead, I'm going to preach the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation. And that first begins with a true recognition of your state. Are you Shrek or are you Sleek and a goat? That's why we titled this message, Shearing of Sheep and the Glory of Goats. Let's move further into this glory. Let's come back to Romans 5, 18 through 19. Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. Verse 19. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. We, through the blood of Jesus, have been made to do good deeds that reflect obedience to the source of who God is. Let's go to the side that has righteousness on top, joy, and justification below. Our righteous deeds lead us to the point of experiencing the justification of God. Who's ever been wrong? your hands down, you're lying. (laughs) Look, I'm going to be honest with you. Isn't it sometimes a very redeeming moment when you blew it big and you just know that you were wrong and the details come out after the fact and you actually were right, but you didn't prove yourself right. God proved you right. That's justification. Now, the ultimate justification is when we stand before the living God at the throne of judgment, our lives are laid out, the books are open, and they are on display for the entire creation to evaluate. You realize that nothing you do in secret is ever going to stay in secret. It's always going to be revealed. You will be shorn either today or tomorrow. It just depends on when you get there. That you will be revealed for who you really are in secret. And when those books are open and your life is measured, to have the blood of Jesus applied to you and your actions, that your righteous deeds out of obedience that comes from the source allows you to stand before God justified that you're right. 
You know, one of the more compelling statements I've read in the Word in the past year or so is the young man in the book of Job. And after he receives completely absurd advice from his three friends and his wife, it's the young man who has wisdom. And concisely, he tells Job, he rebukes him and says, hmm, you justify yourself more than you're justifying God. Yep, you might have been obedient. Yep, you might have done righteous things. But you're working more to justify yourself than you are to justify God. Where's your effort? Is it spent justifying yourself? And even if it doesn't come out of your mouth. I mean, some of you are just avid talkers. And some of you are extremely quiet, like a rock. You keep everything internally. But still the voice of your heart speaks. Do you justify yourself whenever you're wrong? Whenever you feel convicted? Or do you crucify it and wait for the king of kings to justify you? Maybe that's a little bit of the taste of suffering. How long has Jesus waited since he was crucified and resurrected till all what is rightfully his is his? Well, so far it's been a little bit over 2,000 years. How long should we wait? Three days max. Maybe a little bit longer. You know that waiting is just really waiting for our glory to die so that he can resurrect his glory inside of us. So we have source, obedience, righteousness through one act, at least a justification. Let's go to Revelation 5. It is a wonderful thing to be justified in something. It's even more to be glorified. Come on, who wants the glory of God to sit on their shoulders? I do. I'm hideous in my own nature. I need the glory of God to cover me just like it covered Moses' face. So let's read Revelation 5, verses 8 through 10. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, probably an ovation six-string guitar. And they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe, language, and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom. Everybody say kingdom. kingdom. And priests. Everybody say priests. Priest. To serve our God and they will reign on the earth. There is an end. There is a goal to which your obedience through suffering and righteous acts and justification is to lead to. In the, fact, in the case of Jesus, it was so that you could be purchased for God with a specific function, to be a kingdom. This is one thing that we love about missions is that when we go anywhere on earth and we meet a believer, it is water to our soul. I became addicted to missions because I looked in another man's eyes in 1992 or 93 and I saw the same living God inside of him that was inside of me and we couldn't communicate. That was torture. 
I saw he glowed with the glory of God. And I loved him like a brother, though I had never met him before. And I knew who he was, and he knew who I was. And I wanted to meet more men and women of God that have that all over the world. That ultimately, I'm not alone in this. It's not just me that experiences transforming power of God. It's not just me that hunger and thirst for the things of God. But he is doing this all over the world. Well, when we look at this, Jesus is setting the standard. Are you allowing his blood to purchase you? To consistently invite you into his death? Consistently invite you into the shearing of your glory or the transformation of your goat nature that allows you to be a kingdom. Not just be in a kingdom, to be the kingdom and be a priest. I want to reflect on something real quick. Let's go back to Hebrews 9. I'm sorry, Hebrews 5, where we first begin. I want to read verse 9. In fact, let me back up just a little. So in verse 5, So Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest. We just read in Revelation 5 that it's through his blood we have been purchased and made a kingdom and priest. You know, you didn't call yourself to be a kingdom. You didn't call yourself to be a priest. Therefore, it's not you as the source. It's not your will that you're being obedient to. It is not your righteous deeds and it is not your justification that will lead to you becoming a kingdom or becoming a priest. Jesus didn't take upon himself that glory and neither should we. But let's skip down to verse 9. Actually, verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect through his suffering. He became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. God's justification for our lives leads to our glorification in him. God's justification of our lives leads to our glorification in him. One thing we want to look at is the, the Greek word for source. It only occurs here in Hebrews 5. It is Strong's number 159, and it's the cause or source as of eternal salvation. But particularly, get this. The translation of this Greek word as author does not fully convey the meaning. Jesus is spoken of as having reached the goal that he set for man's salvation. Teleothesis. Teleos is a part of that, meaning goal. To finish properly in moral perfection, having brought salvation and consequent obedience to those who believed on him. Let me read that again. Having brought salvation and consequent obedience to those who believe on him. By being our source, it enables us to receive the salvation of our souls and walk in obedience to the author 
of all things. If you cut off the source of your obedience, you cut off the ability to obey, be righteous, be justified, and be glorified. Matthew 7 speaks very clearly. Many on that day will say to me, Lord, Lord. He'll say, away from me, you workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. They missed the source of what they were doing. Let's go to Hebrews 2. Verse 10 through 11. In bringing many sons, everybody say sons. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. But the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. You know, the, the blood of Jesus that allows us to access the source of God's divine nature gives us the right to be in the family of God, but more importantly, to be in direct relationship with Jesus himself. He's not in the grave anymore. He's seated on the throne of God. He sent his spirit inside of you. And that spirit is a spirit of adoption. You've been adopted by the living God. And not just the red-headed stepchild kind of adoption. I'm talking about the full rights kind of adoption. I think we only got one redhead in here, or maybe two. But y'all weren't stepchildren. Instead, we have full rights as sons, as co-heirs with Christ to receive the same glory that he received. It now can be upon us. But if we strive for it in our own manner, we're either... Shrek the goat, or Shrek the sheep, or we're the sleek and strong goat. And God can receive neither of those. But let me show you what he can receive. Joy, put up the picture of that shorn sheep. It's beautiful. Now, I can't confirm nor deny that this is Shrek. But I want you to just imagine that this is Shrek. Isn't he beautiful? Just his face, his demeanor alone is sweet, it's gentle, his coat is white, and he's not growing any glory for himself. He's following the shepherd. He's allowing the shepherd to be his source of obedience and righteousness and justification. And under the shepherd's care, he receives the glory that the shepherd has. Let's go to Romans 8. You can leave that picture up, Joy. Romans 8, 28. I think aside from John three sixteen, this is one of the most quoted scriptures and probably one of the most misquoted scriptures. Romans 8, 28. Everybody there? And we know that in all things. Everybody say, in all things. You know how this is usually misquoted? God works all things to the good of those that love him. 
not necessarily precisely is that that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. This, saints, is the likeness of his son. He came as a lamb that was born to be led to the slaughter, that was dependent on the source of his father, that led to every other source of obedience and righteousness and justification and glorification. There's an end result to this, though. Let's keep reading. That he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? Because this is pretty good stuff. If God is not for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? You know, in him we have everything we need for life and godliness. Peter declares that. But let me tell you what the end goal of your reliance and dependence on God being the source is. It's to be a resource. So if you could put up that last slide that lists all the categories together. Uh, I think, there we go. This is the process. Is that we submit our lives wholly, 100% to the source. And that is God the Father through his son, Jesus. And in that submission, we're able to then have the right kind of obedience that then produces the right kind of righteousness. It then leads to the right kind of justification. It then leads to the right kind of glorification so that we can be a resource for others to bring life to all men. He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. Notice that the outgoing comes first. The sacrifice comes first. The, the, The suffering comes first. There is no guarantee that the minute you begin to pour yourself out on behalf of others, they're being blessed, they're edified, they're glorified, and you are bone dry. Can I tell you that being in ministry is one of the most glorious and yet the most taxing thing I've ever done in my life? And I'm not even complete yet. There's still some more death of Matthew that has to happen. There's still some more crucifying of my sinful nature. That has to happen. Raise your hand if you're single. Do you guys struggle with your sinful nature? You better all say yes. All right, raise your hand if you're married. Do you guys struggle with each other's sinful nature? (laughs) Yes. Husbands say no, wives say yes. You know, I spent five years... In the kingdom, in love with Jesus, single, praying for a wife every single day. And I had gotten to a point where, okay, I have worked to crucify my sinful nature. It is no longer mastery over me. 
it is just taking a beating with God's word every day. I mean, every thought I'm taking captive, I'm throwing it into the Gitmo of God's scriptures. It is never going to see daylight. I'm going to waterboard it with the Holy Ghost. And things are going wonderful. And then I met Cass. And a whole side of my sinful nature I didn't know existed resurrected. And I'm like, where did this come from? I got to put that to death? I'm just getting my own side. Your, your sinful nature is acting up? Well, I'm going to treat your sinful nature like I treat mine. That didn't produce the best results. Apparently, you can't just choke slam with words, somebody else's sinful nature. Husbands, it didn't work that well. Well, Cass and I were married. We struggled to have kids and begin to form a, a, a unit as one before the Lord. I'm like, okay, I think we're getting this. You know, we're struggling to you know, uh, bear children, but we're being shaped into a unity. And by the time I think we got it under control, we have a baby. And the first three months are God-awful torture of never seeing anything more than an hour and a half of sleep. And just to be confessional and repent before everybody else, I pretended on a consistent basis to be asleep when I really wasn't. <laughs> that my wife would get up and get the baby and feed, and I would just kind of lay there hoping she would wake me up to go get the baby. Because I figured, I said, look, I can't breastfeed, so I'm just going to lay here. That was sin on my part. That was my own standard of obedience. I wasn't tapping into the source of who God was. And here I lay before you bare, shorn, like Shrek. <laughs> Managing our sinful nature can never be accomplished in our own strength. You will end up just like Shrek, and if not be, just like the sleek and strong glory of a goat. You seem to have it all together. You've got the nice house. You've got the pretty family. You've got the great job. Kids are making A's. And you are monstrous sinners that are slaves to your every desire. You have yet to be transformed by the word or power of God. Saints, this is what we face individually, but also coming in contact with other people. When you walk outside of these doors, you're going to either meet sheep or you're going to meet goats. And there is no in-between. God's word will give you the ability to discern between one or the other. And more importantly, their reaction to it. You know, the whole man of peace principle is putting out there God's righteous standard to see if they depend on the same source that you do. And if they do, you let your shalom rest there. Let me give you something specific to put into your practice in your life on a daily basis. It's mind-blowing. It's revolutionary. And it comes out of Luke 9, verse 24. Let's turn there. You know, I get caught up into complexities and details very easily. My wife is an anchor a lot of times of my focus. She grounds me back to what I should focus on. My brothers, Eric and Wade, 
oftentimes just with their presence around me and me beginning to think of what I would say as an idea corrects my thoughts and my attitudes of my heart. Because I know, they'll look at me and say, yeah, that's dumb. No, I don't agree with that. <coughs> so what I'm required to do is go back to fundamentals. Lord, how do I return back to the source that leads to obedience, righteousness, justification, glorification, and being a resource for other people to draw from the same way that you are for me? Luke 9.24 begins with, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me will save it. The more that you hold on to your life, your glory, the more you will actually lose it. The minute you begin to let go of all, A-double-L, control of your life is the moment that he begins to truly be Lord of your life. And the three-step process of deny yourself. Everybody say, deny yourself. Let's change it up. Say, deny myself. Crucify myself and follow him. You know, you got to get all three of those. Two out of three doesn't work. Two out of three is great as a batting average in baseball. It is failure in the kingdom of God. So here's what I want you to do in response to this. I want you to stand to your feet.